Well, welcome to the, the next episode. We're here with my friend Jonathan Pillow. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Thanks for coming on. So, yeah, again, we'll, we'll jump right in. So we met at the Dharma Center. Right. How long ago? How long ago did you start going to the Dharma Center? It was in October, I believe. Okay. So last year. Okay. So just six months or so. Yeah. Five, six months. And what first brought you to the Dharma Center? How'd you hear about it? Um, I had driven past it. I live around the corner. So I drove past it several times as a, as like a young teen. I was always kind of interested in it. I had read a lot about Buddhism. And so I was kind of interested about, interested in the whole subject um what eventually brought me there was the 12-step program and trying to identify uh, you know a higher power that i could relate to so that's kind of what got me started there it's funny you bring that up because i was going to transition to that but you said you're kind of looking for a higher power that you could connect with and so in the 12-step program there is some like one or, or a couple of the steps are kind of submitting that you're somewhat powerless like to god right right and so or to a higher power and so right. that's what you were kind of looking for is like that other higher power did you right did you kind of have some questions about the the god aspect of it that you couldn't connect with and that's why you were looking for something else well i'd kind of tried christianity on as a you know as a child and kind of my whole family didn't didn't react to it very strongly i think like my or i had a very religious grandparents um but not so much my parents and so uh I don't know. I wasn't ever very enthusiastic about the churches that we went to. Never really found that sense of community there. And so, I, and if you don't find that sense of community, I think you can't really connect to the religion as right, in, in, a, in a real way. So anyway, I, I felt not alienated from that, but... But was, just distance because di- you never really connected much with... Right. You know, I do feel like there's kind of a, a feeling in lots of Christian, you know, based faiths that if you don't have one particular viewpoint or one particular set of beliefs that, that you're not, your beliefs aren't valid and that you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to go to hell kind of thing. And that may be just my perception of it, but mm-hmm. that's kind of a big thing that I took away from it, that it was very uh, exclusive what I liked about Buddhism was the fact that, I mean, and it was said several times when I first came into the Dharma Center, that, you know, that you don't have to, to leave any kind of faith behind in order to be a part of this, you know, just it will strengthen whatever practice you already have. Yeah. Um, I think that's a pretty cool idea. And I think that any religion should be inclusive of all people, even those that may, uh, you know, connect to spirituality on a different level in a, in a different way. I think that it's really cool that Buddhism is, Buddhism is respectful of that. Yeah, just the way the practice is taught, you, you know, you, you wouldn't disagree with the way they practice, no matter what faith you are. Right. right. Like, no one's going to say that you shouldn't live with compassion and wisdom. And, exactly. You know? Yeah, if you, if you take a step back from the details of every religion, I think you kind of get the same uh, underlying messages and themes, mm-hmm. you know, like you were saying, compassion for all people and, you know, honesty and practice is a big thing. Yep. Yeah. What type of um, churches did you go to growing up? Like, what, did you go to different, like, denominations of Christian churches? Yeah. Uh, I grew up Catholic and that was pretty much my only experience before, you know, down here the last few years. Yeah. So I, you know, I experienced several different um, denominations of, you know, Christianity and, you know, I went to a couple Catholic masses with friends. So I I saw some of that, to be honest, the ritual didn't make sense to me at that point there. Mm -hmm. I think it, it makes a little bit more sense to me now. But anyway, uh, that my grandma was a Baptist, Southern Baptist. So, and so that was a very distinct flavor 
of Christianity where I just I, I always felt kind of out of place because you know I, I wasn't a part of the, the Sunday school mm-hmm. so yeah so you felt not like you were an outsider but just like you weren't on the in-group and didn't really have the knowledge mm-hmm. base to understand right like have those core teachings and, and really start from right exactly like build up i mean they were always building on something that they'd spoken about before and you know i wasn't i didn't attend regularly so i felt you know Mm -hmm. just out outside of it and um so i didn't connect to it there so much but you know my my grandma took it really seriously and then here in uh here at home my parents you know took me to mainly methodist churches and at one point visited a unitarian church as well which was interesting as well yeah in my my hometown so i grew up catholic and I go to the town next to us and there's probably like eight churches between these two tiny little towns. Like my town is like 600 people, but in the town next to us, there's a lot of uh, Baptist families and everyone thinks they're like polar opposites, right? Like night and day between Baptists and Catholics. And there's right. like all these different perceptions of, Oh, Catholics are, you know, the alcoholics and Baptists are the goody goodies. And the, <laughs> you know, and then like, of course there's examples in both churches that are just completely shatter those, but yet those perceptions still carry on and everyone has their own opinions of, well, Baptists do this and Catholics do this. And, and then of course there's all the other churches and everybody's got different opinions of them, but that's all I ever heard was like what the differences are. Right. And never really, you know, went to any of the other churches to learn from the basics. Like, Hey, teach me from the beginning. Like, what is everything that you teach? And like, yeah, never really had the opportunity to kind of learn any of the others from the ground up. Yeah. But, I think it's yeah. kind of a shame that too few people talk about what are the, what are the similarities, mm-hmm. you know? everyone's very focused on the things that separate them but yeah I, I like that about the dharma center as well and i feel like we talk about that in the dharma center with uh, even amongst the different christian faiths so like how it's kind of incorporated in there and you know this is why in the bible it says this and here's the correlating teaching in buddhism and mm-hmm. you know and even in islam or in you know in hinduism um you know these are different characters that represent certain things that are the same life lessons you know right but yeah i like that it's kind of a equanimity that that parallel across all all faiths that then and, and i don't even know if that's like i know we talk about that in some of the classes but i don't even know if that would be like looked down upon by like the risho kosei kai like higher ups that we <laughs> that we draw those comparisons but i think that might be you know kevin the other dharma teachers kind of using their skillful means to like just make it applicable make it common sense sorry well, phone's yeah. uh ringing here but kevin always says um you know that it's just a story and you know that these are symbols for the most part you know i think that the Bible is supposed to be read in the same way. It's symbology, not literal. Not literal. Yeah, and that is probably where a lot of different denominations get branched off is mm-hmm. when there's disagreements about that. About, well, it says this and that clearly means this literally. And then, you know, when that happens, then there's another split and another denomination forms. And that happens in Buddhism too, you know, between the, the different types of Buddhist monks that like to isolate themselves and, and meditate. Mm-hmm. And then the other, you know, other Buddhists that say, no, these sutras are more important and it's more about the community and, and all these other things. So, yeah, it's interesting. They have all those different parallels. But of course, those disagreements cause the different branches, different denominations. So, yeah, it's just, you know, really lucky to find Risha Koseki, I think, you know, the, the, it's lucky for me that the first Buddhist you know, place that I stumbled into was so, uh, I don't know, the, the teaching that they apply is so inclusive. Yeah, inclusive is a good word. Yeah, very welcoming and place where they clearly they know and understand their practice and kind of why it becomes so attractive for people to come back i think because it's so welcoming and um yeah it's just a good environment good community feel so in your kind of search for that like higher power how would you define that that like higher power that you found within buddhism like as it relates to like the 12-step program 
he's my higher power, I guess. Uh, I like to think of it as just the flow of energy in the universe that we all kind of are a part of. Okay. We talk about that a lot in Buddhism, which I think kind of comes to the teaching of like non-self. And that's kind of one of the things that you hear in the 12-step program. They'll say, you know, it doesn't really matter what your higher power is so long as you understand that you're not it. That you're not that you're not the highest power in the universe. That you know there is something greater than you. Okay, where's that at in the twelve? Well, what are the twelve steps? It'd be great. I, if I can I look have, them. Yeah, <laughs> look we, them should, up we should look it up. All right, because I don't know if it's like in the beginning, in the end. Is this like one of the first steps you have to make? Um, yes, that is like the step second step. Program. All right, one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That our lives had become unmanageable. Right. And then two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Okay. So it's the second step. You basically need to accept that higher power. Yeah. And then your third step is to make a decision to turn your will and lives over to the care of your higher power or of God as you understand him. So, so yeah, it's the, it's early on. Um, and, and what do you mean? Turn your will over, turn our will and our lives to the care of God as we understood him. So, so basically like be willing to let that higher power have other influence on you. So for me, the serenity prayer is the best way of kind of sorting that out. Okay. Remind me what the The serenity serenity prayer prayer is the way we begin every single AA meeting. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So when you're turning your will over to God, you're really that's really the process of understanding what the things are that you can and cannot change. That's what it was for me. These are steps that are very easy to just kind of say, all right, it's done. You know, I thought pretty soon after I started going to the Dharma center that I had found my higher power and that I was like, sure, I can, I can give my will over to this higher power. No problem. It's done. Um, But then you run into uh, situations in your life as you as you go on where you realize that you're being willful you know that you're uh that you're trying to affect outcomes in ways that that are kind of unnatural so you're trying to change the things that you need to be accepting you know if you go back to the serenity prayer okay so anyway so it gets you to yeah so it just gets you to focus on the things in your life that you can actually change and be aware of those so rather than seeing yourself as maybe a victim of certain situations and then resorting to something just to deal with that you can recognize that oh there is actually an aspect of this that i can control Mm -hmm. but there's also aspects i can't so i'm just going to focus on the aspects of this that i can control you know the, the points in it where you can make a decision yeah on what your next action or thought is going to be yeah and invariably the only thing that we have control over in this universe is our mind you know and our actions uh, we don't have, even have full control over our mind but we have control over the, the way we react to it mm-hmm. yeah that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole if you want to talk about if we really have free will or not and like or if everything's just you know we're just a, a computer and based on the you know the input <laughs> there's already a predetermined output <laughs> right well and like uh, in natalie's reading today she was kind of talking about that idea of dependent origination mm-hmm. which is you know a really interesting concept to me that you know everything you know even the decisions we're making are being influenced by hundreds and hundreds of other decisions and other mm-hmm. factors that have come into play yeah, maybe years ago, maybe seconds ago. Right. You know. There's no one cause of anything. Right. like thousands. There's like infinite causes to any given situation. Exactly. And so rather than trying to exert your will over those hundreds of thousands of causes, just um, you know, stepping back, 
trying to react to a situation in the way that's going to be the healthiest for you in that moment. Yeah. Something I've heard you uh, talk about before at the Dharma Center was, uh, and the word when you said react kind of reminded me of it. It's, it was when you learned to, to respond, respond as opposed to react. Re- yeah. Yeah. Um, explain that again. Cause I'm missing the, the main point of it. I feel like <laughs> well, just um, our, we have our knee jerk reaction to every situation. Um, okay. So that's the react is when you react without thinking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you can think of like a, um, what's it called? A reflex. A reflex, yes. You can think. (laughs) You're hitting your funny bone. (laughs) I know what you meant. You know, somebody hits the funny bone and your leg pops up. Uh, You got your reaction, your knee-jerk reaction. Right. Uh, (laughs) Somebody gives you the finger and you immediately want to yell at them or punch them in the face. Or (laughs) you can, you know, take just half a second to breathe and think about, you know, if this person cut me off in traffic, is it going to do me any good to to flip them off or to honk or to yell obscenities into the glass in front of me that they definitely can't hear, you know, is, (laughs) is any of that going to do me any good? No, it's just going to raise my blood pressure and put me in a bad mood, you know? So you have to think about responding to the world in just a a mindful way. I think is all it really is. It's just practicing mindfulness and, Mm -hmm. In our next action in AA, it's called uh, doing the next right thing. Okay. You know, it doesn't matter what happened previously. It's always just thinking about, you know, how can I cause positive change in the next action I make? Yeah, and it kind of, it, it reminds me of that serenity prayer. The, you know, accepting the things you can't control, uh, only focusing on those things that you can. And then right. taking that deep breath and like hopefully summoning based on all the things you've learned. And hopefully you've got the wisdom to know the difference. And right. Like, and that's hard. Yeah, yeah. it's super hard. Yeah, as soon as you master it, then uh, I feel like the world usually asks you to level up, and it throws you one more challenge you didn't. You're not sure if you're ready for, and yeah, yeah, and that's what yeah, I was kind of. You keep learning, and that's what I was getting at with the the third step. You know that it kind of takes time. It's easy for one to say that they've um, that they've given their will over to their higher power, but then little situations start to come up, and you're like, well, you know, I I really I really like this girl, so let me try and be somewhat manipulative you know like you want to make the relationship work so you try to control an outcome that Mm -hmm. really shouldn't be controlled exactly yeah so you step outside of that zone and you know you're realizing that um eventually you start to catch yourself and say hey i'm uh this is a place where i need to be giving my will over this is a place where i need to it's more of a thing like freeing yourself of the expectation that you can affect other people's mindsets mm-hmm. and that you can uh, change the world with any of your actions. When you give that will over, it takes that burden off of you. And you're like, dang, all I can do right now is, you know, maybe be honest and as respectful in this relationship as possible. And if things work out, then, you know, that is the will of the universe, mm-hmm. you know. And that can be humbling. Yeah. Especially in our culture where like, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm almost like coached or taught to be a leader and be a go-getter and go make change. And then, you know, that can kind of weigh on you as a responsibility. So, you know, it can be a little bit freeing, Mm -hmm. but also kind of limits you a little bit and humbles you to to remember like, hey, you can only control the things that you can control, which is your actions. You you can't control every situation. And, uh, you know, you do have to learn to let go in a lot Mm -hmm. of those situations. So what's the next step on the 12 step? Let's see. The moral inventory. And yeah, that's what we were, that's what we did at my uh, deep dive. Okay. 
And so. I like this. This, yeah, I, I told you afterwards, this reminded me of a exercise that Dak Shepard did on uh, one of his podcasts that he talked about, kind of this exercise to identify what your core fears are. Uh, mm-hmm. And yours is a little different. Yours talked about fears and resentments. Right. So the, I mean, the way that the moral inventory really works is we start with writing down a list of our resentments and that can be pretty extensive for some people. Some people will go back to, you know, every time that they got called a name in grade school that stuck with them. Mm-hmm. Anything that really like eats at you. Yeah. Anything that bothers you, right? Yeah. I mean, it, that list can grow over time because, you know, we're just going through life and then we get pulled back into this moment of anger, you know, whatever that we didn't you know we haven't experienced for a long time but that happens to me all the time where you know i have like a little trigger you know and suddenly yeah i am back in high school and i'm experiencing an argument that i had with a person way back when and you know why am i back in this in in this world at that moment but anyways so people write all these things down as a way of kind of clearing all that out and from the resentments we kind of look at where we played a part in it and going back to the serenity prayer what how we could have affected that situation differently maybe okay that's kind of what we're looking at i think one of the things i didn't maybe didn't understand during it is what were kind of the differences between the fears and resentments because i was kind of just making a list of like all things that bothered me but is there a well, difference like a clear difference in your mind well yeah to me fears are what leads to resentments it's like the the what was the quote from master yoda ah uh, oh yeah um oh my gosh i can't bring it there's much fear in you. Fear yeah. leads to anger. Fear leads An- to anger. Anger yeah. leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. So yeah, I think that fear, and I think that's very accurate. And George Lucas was an avid AA member. I don't know if you're. He aware. was. Yeah. Oh, cool. So lots of um. Well, not cool, but <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So um. Yeah. Uh, lots of Buddhism and lots of AA there in the first three star Wars, Mm -hmm. if you look out for it, but yeah, definitely that fear leads to anger. And so I think fear creates resentment. The the purpose of my deep dive when I had everybody first start with writing down their resentments and then tracing that back to um, like why we were affected by that so strongly. And the biggest, uh, you know, there's, there's several reasons why that might've made us upset, but the biggest one that we hone in on usually ends up being where did that situation make me fearful? What was I fearful of in that situation? Like the example I used during my deep dive was in relationships that I was resentful of an ex-girlfriend, mainly because I had a fear of being alone. So I think going through the resentments, um, you start to see where fear controlled the decisions you were making in your life. And then that helps you recognize patterns of behavior uh, that you need to try and change. Right. Yeah. After I heard about this exercise or kind of a similar exercise, probably a little over a year ago, I talked about it for a long time, but never really did it. Mostly because I was like kind of procrastinating the struggle of going through and identifying my fears and (laughs) almost like fearing that internal inspection I was about to do. Yeah, uh, but I finally did it and I identified kind of what my three fears were and I kind of had an idea, um, but this helped me like for sure solidify it. And so the way 
this one worked was basically write down all the people that you resent or, or bother you for any reason. And so it's write down, you know, 15, 20, 30 people, whatever it is, and then write down why, like what they do that bothers you or is a reason why you resent them or resent something that happened or whatever. And then write down the fear of yours that they trigger. Mm -hmm. And so I did that and realized that my main three were like my fear of being seen as stupid, my fear of being seen as like unsuccessful, and then a fear of being seen as like selfish or arrogant. And those are like my, probably my biggest three. Cause those three were like repeating like over and over. Like there are different people that triggered the, the selfish, arrogant trigger. Yeah. And then others that just through association, like I didn't want to be associated with them due to being feared of being seen as a certain way. But yeah, it was, and they're all based on my own fears. And then now knowing that I feel like I can just continue to break those down mm -hmm. until I can kind of dissolve those fears. And then those people won't, you know, bother me really. Um, like there's no reason that those people should upset me. You know, if right. I can just focus on the internal thought of mine that triggers that resentment, then I can dissolve it and not be bothered by them for a petty reason that actually has everything to do with me and nothing to do with them. Right. Exactly. I like that. It's kind of a concise way of ex exercises, really a way of just getting to like the meat and potatoes of what the, right. Of what the resentment, the fourth step is. Right. And not hiding behind this narrative that you have that, oh, this person is this way. Mm -hmm. And was like, nah, that's not really what's bothering you. Like, dig deeper. Right, exactly. Like, if that person really bothers you, there's a fear in you that led to that. Right. And like, until you've done the work to really like dive into that, discover what it is and work on that within yourself. Sure, you're going to keep spinning that narrative that, oh, I don't like this person because they are this. And a lot of the times those fears are just signals of something that we need to be taken care of. Uh, you know, I talk about not looking at the fear as something that you need to just squash and turn away from, but really leaning into it. You know, I think meditation is awesome for like learning to be with emotions that may be troubling, but if you can sit with them and not react to them for a moment, then you learn how to actually respond to that feeling. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I'm fearful of, you said something about success, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe that, that fear is there just to kind of keep you you know on your toes to keep you a little bit of fire under your butt make sure you don't become complacent but it's also something that you shouldn't something that you shouldn't allow to control your emotions right i think that's where it gets uh, mm -hmm. to become a problem is once it controls your emotions it can control your actions as well mm -hmm. so just uh putting that space between that object of fear and your response to it is really valuable yeah, like you said, with taking the time to take a deep breath, mm -hmm. remember all the things you've learned, kind of use that wisdom, and then apply it before you actually act or, or react. Right. Okay, so once you've taken a moral inventory, then the next step says, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So I assume that's why AA is done as kind of a group mm -hmm. exercise, right? Like you kind of sit in a circle like we do in Hosea, essentially. Yeah, and that's what I really liked about I think the first thing I went to at the temple was a Sunday service and sat during Hosea. And I was like, man, this is this is everything I like about AA without kind of the hopelessness. And I say that, like, I should qualify that it's not hopelessness, but it's like a different vibe in AA. And I've kind of distanced myself from AA a little bit. Like, I haven't been to a meeting in probably almost two months now. Which is, a, is, you know, is a big gap for me, but I feel like my thoughts are kind of just changing a little bit. You know, you go into AA and the biggest thing that you kind of have to accept 
is that you are an alcoholic with and that's a disease and that if you ever have another drink in your life you're going to spiral out of control and you know it's going to basically the idea is that all of your suffering and all of the things that are happening in your life are caused by alcohol and if you just just stop drinking alcohol and follow the steps that everything is going to be great i think that they're kind of just a little bit narrow viewed like you kind of get the idea that alcohol is the root of your problems where i think that i think alcoholism is more of a symptom of greater suffering that everybody has right but it's maybe an easier like in order to sell it to someone to convince someone hey this is a good idea that's maybe an easier evil to identify and say like hey this is the root of your problems because like in the immediate to take that first step, that's definitely an easy thing to identify as, look, this is the number one thing you need to focus on to improve your life. And then as a part of the steps, I feel like when you get into the steps, you realize there's more to letting go than just the alcohol. Like it's a mental transformation that really needs to happen. And that's why they talk about, you know, somebody that they talk about a dry drunk is essentially somebody that's not drinking, but they're not going to, they're not following the steps. They're not working the steps. They're not going to meetings, not working to increase their conscious contact with God they're um, not really working on that self-improvement right they just kind of so you can be uh, in that kind of stick, sticking in that hell realm without drinking that's mm-hmm. that's easy enough for anybody to do you know there's all kinds of people who who live their life in a hell realm of their own and it doesn't always have to do with alcohol yeah but yeah they definitely package it that way to make it more accessible i think and they talk about at the beginning of every meeting part of it is they they ask for the singleness of purpose you know we confine our discussion to the way alcohol affects us yeah just to to make it a tool that's relatable for everyone in the in the room Mm -hmm. so i can't say that it's a bad thing and i can't say that there's not a whole lot of depth to aa uh, you just start to, and it's more just in the interactions with people, I guess, um, that the people in AA are very, very focused on alcohol as it affects them, even though it's hardly a part of their lives anymore. And so um, I kind of just like that I'm able now to find all that spiritual growth that I was finding in AA and, you know, the community, the support, just the growth, all that's still happening in my life. Just Mm -hmm. I'm spending four days a week at the Dharma Center instead of going to four meetings a week, you know. Um, But I still do want to get back in touch with, there's lots of great people that I've met Mm -hmm. in the program and I just got to find a way to balance those two parts of my life that are kind of new to me in addition to, you know, everything else. So how long ago did you start AA? It has been over a year. Let's see. So October of, not not last October, not this recent one, but the one before. What year would that be? 2018. Yeah. So October of 2018, I had uh, to go to the hospital. I was vomiting blood um, and had tears in my esophagus. Oh my gosh. So that was from, uh, you know, chronic gastritis from uh, my stomach's mad at me for for drinking every day you know for the past two years you know or so Uh, it'd probably been a few years since i went a full day without any kind of drink at that point so yeah uh, my stomach was finally starting to react anyway so yeah tears in my esophagus sent me to the to the hospital and had to stay there for two nights so after that i started to think maybe i need to work on this alcohol thing Mm mm-hmm um, what were you doing at the time? Were you a chef at the time? Is that kind of your? Uh, not well. At that time, I was still a cafeteria uh, cafeteria manager okay. at Northside. And did you drink with a lot of your coworkers? 
or or what was no, your no not at your, all there it was what just, was your normal scene where you did catch yourself drinking every day was it at home yeah it was mainly at that point it was really isolating at home okay because you know i was on the end of a relationship quite a long relationship that was mm-hmm. a lot of it was about alcohol to think about it okay um yeah and just struggling not knowing really how to cope with that loss and like mm-hmm. turning to that to kind of numb the pain a little yeah, definitely turning yeah. into like something that was familiar and but yeah, uh, and one thing we talk about a lot in in the program is when you start to isolate, that's when you know that you need you're starting to have trouble. We kind of take that as a as a sign of when somebody stops responding, you're like eh, maybe they're not in the best mindset, maybe they're going back towards that drinking mindset. So isolation is a big is a big uh, recurring theme there. Is there kind of like a reach out kind of norm or expectation there of like if you you know if you're going through a with somebody and you know they don't come for a while Mm -hmm. is there kind of an expectation of hey let's let's reach out to so-and-so he hasn't come in in a few weeks or whatever yeah there's definitely that i mean um and like i said i haven't been in two months but i'm still in almost daily contact with a good friend of mine in the program okay but he knows you're in a good spot because you're able to use the song at the Dharma Center to right. kind of get the same support. Yeah. Um, maybe not as often, but yeah, exactly. And so I'll still like a bowl for the, for the halt team. Halt is the name of the, uh, one of the groups I go to. Okay. So yeah, I'll still bowl with the AA team and, uh, and do little things. I just haven't made it to meetings. But yeah, so there's definitely a support system there to keep people involved. The, one of the reasons I started that the Sangha Facebook group was because kind of mirroring what Halt does. They have this huge group with, you know, a couple hundred people in it that really just, you know, post in there to keep each other motivated spiritually and keeping up with, you know, the diff- all the different events that we do. So that's a pretty cool way to connect, I think. Keep people in the loop. Let them know you haven't gone off the deep end. Yeah, it's a good way just to keep regular events happening. Yeah. Um, but so so that night when you did get taken to the hospital, did somebody close to you take you in and then, you know, kind of like have a talk with you at that point to like help you decide to go into AA or did you kind of make that decision on your own? Yeah, nobody. I was really taken aback by the fact that just like nobody addressed that directly at the hospital. No, Like you go in. Like they told you it was alcohol poisoning, I assume. Well, or the doctors maybe. The, did. Yeah, I mean, it was clear that it was alcoholism. They they also had to treat me to help me detox over the course of the time I was there because yeah, because that's a long time to be in a hospital to think of. Okay, there's one reason I'm here. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, part of my treatment was Ativan to counteract the withdrawal symptoms from alcohol because, like I said, I had you know been a daily drinker for years, mm-hmm. so you start to have physical withdrawals. Anyway, all this was part of it, but the doctors in the end were just kind of like, well, um, here's a list of things to avoid. And, you know, there's alcohol, don't eat spicy foods either. <laughs> you know, like kind of oh, wow. <laughs> it was like, yeah, here's a list of the permanent damage you've done. <laughs> and like doing any of these things is going to make all this worse. And I'm sure top of the list is alcohol. Yeah, but I guess they see enough of that that it's kind of something that they don't want to address that right um, they're kind of calloused by it to where yeah they just see it as well you overconsumed alcohol and they're maybe not going to say like hey you have alcoholism and you need to get professional help well and i think that they probably would say that but the stigma around alcoholics is that there is no recovery and that's the whole you know definition of addiction is you know doing something repeatedly despite negative consequences so I mean, doctors mm-hmm. see it as something that 
Well, you know, they they see it as something they have to accept, as something they can't control. So uh, yeah. they're not going to take on the responsibility of feeling like they have to. Yeah, you can't, right? Talk yeah. every addict out of addiction. Like, yeah, you can't take a, that burden yeah, yeah. on. You know, that's not really their place. Right. Um, I would have appreciated some like <laughs> some guidance. Someone into, to grab you and shake you a little bit. Well, yeah, some <laughs> guidance into like some kind of rehab program or something. I found that the only way. I wasn't able to go into any kind of rehab like I probably should have because I continued to drink for a few months after. Okay. The, after. So it, like it would have helped just to have like some information, some awareness of what mm-hmm. is out there for you. But I, you know, the only way that I could get any kind of treatment would have been to go and commit myself to a treatment center and you really lose any freedom for maybe a week or so. I couldn't do that with my job. For me, there was no in-between. Nobody was willing to treat somebody that just went off of alcohol, like in an outpatient program. I guess there's too much liability there. So either you're in it completely or nobody wants to touch you. So I kind of ended up just stumbling through it. So when you, you, but you first like willingly went on your own decision to AA. Yeah, eventually. I mean, it came from uh, seeing a close childhood friend who had come back from much darker depths than I had. He was clean and sober. I saw him picking up his six month chip on, you know, like an Instagram post. And uh, that was really inspiring to me. So I asked him, hey, man, we had talked about it a little bit in the past. Mm-hmm. and there's a principle of attraction rather than recruitment in AA. So okay. he didn't want to uh, push me into it, but when I did ask for help, you know, he was, he brought me to a meeting that night, you know, which was pretty cool. Okay, cool. So uh, he kind of sponsored you a little bit like to get you started. Mm-hmm. And then you kept drinking a little bit after that or like, uh, yeah, yeah. Was, cause yeah. yeah, cutting off cold Turkey just on your own decision would be yeah a little tough. Yeah. And but I mean, still, it came gradually you know, it's become something that I don't worry about as much anymore. When I was first going to my first hoses, I talked a lot about like my sobriety date, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is something I've just completely uh, forgo that whole thing at this point. Yeah, um, I remember that. I think I feel like the first time you were a little more upset when you reset. Mm-hmm. And then I think recently you were like, yeah, I reset it again, but I'm going again. I'm, yeah. You know, and, back on. And, and so, you know, right now my my thought is that all the sobriety date is for a lot of AAs is kind of a reminder of the last time you fucked up, which isn't that helpful to me. You know, if, if, what it's supposed to be is to show newcomers you know, hey, this program works. Right, uh, this what, can be a lasting thing. Yeah, somebody comes into their first meeting and they see somebody picking up a 10-year chip and they're like, wow, all right, so... This works. This works. It's not everybody on week one or two. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the purpose of it. But to me, yep. it became a little bit of a hindrance. And so I think you have to tailor the program to work for you. I feel like you're focusing on things more than just your alcoholism now. Like right. The fact that you don't reset every week, you, I feel like, have... Are, are kind of past the alcoholism thing. And, and I don't know, I'm sure you, you know, get urges or temptation or whatever, but I feel like you're focusing on a lot more than just alcoholism now. So when you say like that reminder of the last time you fucked up was however many months ago, you know, that maybe isn't as helpful because now when you're looking at Buddhism, fucking up is kind of like letting things cause you suffering, mm-hmm. right? Like, Exactly. There's other things you can focus on that, like, you're not going to pretend like, oh, I've been perfect for six months. <laughs> like, right. No one's been perfect for six months. Like, but Yeah, they say don't let perfect practice get in the way of good practice, right? Mm-hmm. So rather than ruminating on times that I haven't been perfect in my sobriety, I'm just going to go with it and 
you know, at this point, I know that I'm going to have urges and, you know, I know that it's also not necessarily a horrible thing if I have a drink in a social setting and I'm able to control myself, then, you know, it seems like putting myself in a box of, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I'm never going to be able to live a certain type of life is a lot more, is more extreme than you need to go. Yeah. 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 I was, I was curious about that too, is is that looked down upon in the AA like community or like by the book? Like yeah, you're not supposed to get back to where you can just like comfortably have one or two drinks in a social scene with friends and then like have the restraint to stop. Like that seems admirable to me. Mm-hmm. But again, I haven't battled with that uh, addiction piece of it. So I don't know if that's like, you know, dancing with the devil a little bit and like. Well, yeah, there's definitely two schools of thought in recovery. One is complete abstinence and the other is the social Drinking is possible and something that can kind of blow off some steam, I guess. But But yeah, I feel like everybody would have different personal goals and it's probably good for the program itself to just focus on abstinence because that's a pretty clear, you know, like life changing and it makes it clear that that is your goal is to kick the addiction. Just saying Um, nothing at all is a lot simpler, right? Just than trying to regulate. But I also wonder if, if maybe that, that almost makes it scarier for someone who's like, not really wanting to start AA because it's like such a definite no drink ever again thing as opposed to like, hey, how about we help you get back to where you can learn to have self-control and just do it in moderation and do it responsibly. Where like going into a program, knowing that that's the goal, it makes it a lot lower of a walt. Like, you know, it makes it feel a lot less impossible. Like if you ask an alcoholic, like, hey, how about tomorrow we go to AA and you never drink again? It'd be like, whoa Mm -hmm. that's that's a huge life change i don't know if i'm ready for but if it's like hey how about you come to this thing it's a cool like social scene and we're going to practice towards doing this in moderation um are there are like organizations that do that or is aa really the only one that like is out there and abstinence is kind of their thing um you know i can't speak to that super knowledgeably i think that other countries are a lot more into that kind of uh moderation type uh, recovery more than we see in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., it's kind of strange how AA is court mandated. You know, uh, it's a spiritual program that can be mandated by the court. Oh yeah, that's it's interesting. pretty interesting, right? So, despite there being kind of a tradition, definitely a written tradition in AA that um, it shouldn't be associated with any institutions or they're kind of they're writing that in as to talk like about hospitals that, that I guess AA shouldn't be sold to people, that it should be, you know, free of any of the fetters of being institutionalized, I guess. But what do you mean? Like when, like for profit institutions yeah, or like well, it's not supposed to be associated with a religion or like why would it, why should it not be associated with a hospital? Like, um, once you start to put it in the hands of a corporation you know that corporation can kind of twist the the intent the intent of aa towards its goals so the idea is to be you know completely just yeah i can see why it shouldn't be a for-profit run by members for members and that's it right right And Um, and then you know judges that are like sending people there and then the company makes money off of it yeah that's obviously like kind of a conflict of interest in there where it's like not really for the betterment of the people but at the same time so now we have like a aa is seen as the only real way of treating alcoholism in hospitals and courtrooms and everything it's like the prescribed well there are rehab centers right where we're like you basically get 
which teach you know they're all based around the 12 steps for the most part yeah or they definitely have 12 step meetings uh, as a big part of those rehab centers okay and are they all taught using the the phrase god um i think there's some differences i I know i definitely there's like uh kind of revised books out there okay revised maybe versions of the same steps yeah yeah because i mean you can and and i guess we kind of do this with a lot of the Buddhist stuff, but yeah, you can basically take God out and replace that word with that higher power uh, or something like that. And it all still kind of means the same, but so the last step is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, uh, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So that sounds kind of a lot like the Bodhisattva vow, right? Right. Okay. So it's more of a, like, I've realized this changed my life and I'm going to help do the same for others. So, but it's still not, you said there's not like a attraction. It's more, or there's not recruitment, right. but it's more of a, I'm going to show you through my life how the changes I've made. So like, I don't know, there's a saying that you can't keep it unless you give it away, referring to your sobriety. So just, I think it's just maintaining that practice. We talk about how we find value in our suffering in one way because we're able to to use that suffering to help somebody who's maybe a couple of steps behind us on that path. We Mm -hmm. see somebody on a similar path going through things that we've seen before. And now that you've gone through all the steps... You should be qualified to, you know, lend a helping hand to the people that are just a little bit behind you. So, I mean, the main thing that gets turned into, translated into, is sponsorship. So, at the end of every meeting, the chair will ask people who, that are willing to be a sponsor to raise their hand. And anybody who needs a sponsor can go and, you know, talk to one of those people. And a sponsor is basically like when you're there and you're new, your sponsor is just kind of like somebody you can text questions to. to it's like, somebody that... Kind of like a one-on-one... They guide you through the steps. Advisor or the guide. Idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. their job is to guide you through the steps okay. and to get you through. So there's the somebody to step. talk to other than just speaking to the whole group when it's your turn to talk. That's yeah, like exactly. more of a one-on-one aspect. Yeah. Okay. And so do you still talk to, do, like, do you have somebody that you sponsor or do you still talk to the guy that sponsored you? Yeah, I'm, I should be talking to my sponsor more often. He's a good guy, but like I said, I've kind of fallen out. Well, I have been maintaining contact with friends. Mm-hmm. I think when I go back to 12-step, which i am kind of been planning on getting back into my steps, because I, st- I stopped off at step six. That's okay. where I'm at. Just kind of lost steam, so I think I'm going to... You can change sponsors. You can, you know, they call it firing your sponsor. Not that I think that's kind <laughs> that of sounds really intense. That sounds intense. I'd rather just, you, you know... You have to invite him into a boardroom, <laughs> turn the lights down. <laughs> I'd rather just, you know... <laughs> say i want to have two sponsors but no (laughs) um you've been terminated (laughs) but yeah i just uh kind of lost steam with him and that's fine yeah i felt like maybe he had like i was talking about kind of a narrower narrower view of things we were talking about and maybe i just need somebody that has a little bit more experience in like the kind of place that i am spiritually right now okay so i'll see how that goes but like for now, it's awesome to have people like, I mean, a lot of people go through the 12 steps without a sponsor and, uh, you know, spiritual leaders like the ones we have at the Dharma Center are mm-hmm. awesome people to, to go to whenever you have a, a problem. Yep. So long as you've got somebody that you can bend their ear and is going to give you sound advice. Right. That's really the... But, but yes, but especially if you have somebody who has gone through the exact same type of addiction yeah. you were dealing with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that you're definitely going to find at AA. Yeah. Uh, and maybe at the Dharma Center. I'm sure there are some people who have battled similar things, but 
but yeah, that's one thing where AA can continue to kind of provide for you. But right. yeah, you're right though. It does sound like that Bodhisattva path in Buddhism where it's, you know, it's not enough just to do it for yourself. You know, mm-hmm. other people are battling with the same thing. So, yeah. you know, when you can pass it on, that's where you can prove that this is a lasting thing that works and continue to help other people in the same process. Yeah. What's the hardest part? Like, is there any part of AA that you've kind of like questioned or had a hard time buying into or maybe did in the beginning or not really? Was it kind of like a refreshing, like, yeah, this, this all sounds like it's going to work. I think my biggest struggle was with the idea of the higher power and identifying what that could be because you can't really progress until you've kind of identified that, I feel. Yeah, that would be the hardest barrier for me. Yeah, reading what those steps are. Because the higher power in Buddhism is tough to define. Very. Yeah, and I'm still defining. My definition changes every day. Right. Like you're like the constant flow of energy. A year ago, that'd mean nothing to me. I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Like, and ask <laughs> like, me tomorrow, you... and I'll define it totally differently. Right. You know? um, <laughs> I'd be like, what are you smoking? Flow <laughs> of energy? Like, and, you know, and by that, I just kind of mean, like, you know, what, what I was able to understand about Buddhism, like, was this idea of kind of interconnectedness that I can understand physically that when I die, I am going to decompose and become nutrients that are in the soil. And I'm going to become, you know, the energy that goes into a blade of grass that is eaten by a herbivore that's in, then eaten by the, the carnivore. Right. And, you know, I'm just going to go up the food chain and this is energy, you know, that's not being destroyed you know there's, there's the scientific principle that matter the energy matter cannot be created or destroyed mm-hmm. and so. i'm not going to argue with that and try and go into black holes cause I don't <laughs> but i know people get really excited when somebody says that and they're like but <laughs> yeah yeah but there's antimatter the, like, well, I, I don't know any of that stuff. yeah i don't either <laughs> but i mean based on my i'm not going to try and disagree based on my elementary knowledge of yeah. uh physics yeah I understand (laughs) that energy seems to stick around. It seems to stick around. And (laughs) and so I think when I say the flow of energy in the universe, it's kind of what I'm talking about is like, we're all, whether we like it or not, we're all in this flow of energy. We're in this river that's going to take us whether we like it or not in a certain direction. Yeah. I think the way Jerry likes to explain it is like, in the same way that there are individual cells in your body that are part of an organ that is then part of this bigger organism that's your body, we are all a cell in this big organism that is the world. Right. And it's all part of one cohesive, one system that's all like one living being, basically. Like we're all one. Yeah. So so this like idea that you kind of have to surrender that there is a higher power. So is that contradictory to like in Buddhism, the truth of cause by saying that all of your suffering is really caused internally. Like to me, that somewhat makes it sound like there's not a higher power. Like you can control your suffering uh, and it's all within you. So like what, what is the need for the higher power to surrender to? Right. And Kevin's actually brought that up before when I told him that I, when I told him when he's like trying to learn more about AA. Yeah. We, we were having a conversation and I said something that I said to you that in AA, they say that you don't have to know what your higher power is, just that it's not you. And he says, oh, well, in Buddhism, that's not necessarily true either. And I think he's referring to kind of what you're saying, that idea of be the light, but at the same time, let the Dharma be your light. Mm-hmm. I feel proud that I asked a question similar to Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> but But you know what I mean? Like, in Buddhism, I'm not the higher power because a higher power implies control, right? Right. And we don't. We talked about how 
I guess, just how there's a thousand different causes to everything, right? And right. we are one of them. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm a higher power and that I can control every situation. I can control what's between my ears to a right. certain extent, but that doesn't make it me a higher power. That just makes me in control of my own mind. But that higher power maybe could be the understanding that, you know, if there's a thousand causes, I'm one of them. There's 999 others that is controlled by this higher power thing, which is mm-hmm. the big, you know, the, the truth of the universe, the cause and effect, God, you know, whatever it is that you do have to kind of submit to. So you, you, know, you just kind of have to submit control, maybe submits the wrong word, like give up the fact that you're in control because you're not in yeah. entire control, but you're in control of yourself. Well, yeah. So it gets to the wisdom. It's another difference, right? So there's always going to be something that you can change, which is your mind in that current moment. You know, that's all you have is mm. just, you know, the moment you're in, you can affect your own thinking and uh, everything else that happened before all, all of these causes and conditions that have come up to this point are outside of your reach of right. what you can uh, affect. So, right. Yeah. Or you can at least ha- affect how you think about them or, yeah. or how it affects you. Then that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just accepting that there are a lot of things outside your control. So then it depends how you define that. So when I say like, you know, that my conception of my higher power is the flow of energy in the universe, I'm still a part of that flow of energy. You know, I'm still a piece of my higher power, but I'm only a a very small part of it. So there's so much more. Like you were saying, it's like being, uh, it's like being, you know, a single cell in the body, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't have a whole lot of control over what the, what the whole does. Have you checked out the the When You Feed podcast? I think uh, yeah. I think I told you about it, but you need to. You'll like it a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, the nice. one the one you feed. Okay, I will check that out. Now it's on. It's... Now it's recorded, so you can't forget. Oh yeah, that's true. I have I have no excuse now. <laughs> uh, but no, that yeah, that sounds just the name of it. Uh, sounds like it's definitely going to be helpful and related to a lot of the stuff we talk about. Uh, yeah, you remember the parable um, of the two wolves. Yeah, and the one you yeah. feed. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, that reminds me of the um, video Laura shared. I'll have to send you this video um, Laura shared. It was maybe a year, year and a half ago. Um, but it was this little boy, and he basically just gives this talk while, during a video that talks about, um, like, be careful what you practice. Mm-hmm. Like, be careful what your habits are. Right. Because those are going to become your habits, and that's going to define yeah. what you do regularly and what yeah. you yeah what you do without even thinking, what your, your natural thoughts are. Right. Uh, like, whatever your your normal actions are. Uh, you know, if you're at work and you're talking to your coworkers and you guys tend to talk shit about people, your natural reaction in those conversations is going to be to talk shit about people. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's probably not something you want to cultivate in your mind or like make that your first reaction yeah. or your, your, you know, your first response or it's, that's not where you want your mind to go naturally. So yeah. Or I talked about in my deep dive, just about how since we're wired to remember negative events so much more powerfully because Prehistorically, they they might have uh, helped us avoid actual danger. Right, there but, were more survival instincts. Right, but now you know we're kind of hardwired to to bring all this negativity to the forefront of our brain, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not. So the right, so the, a little bit of negativity in your day can outweigh a whole lot of positive action. It's kind of just takes over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will definitely have to check out that podcast for I, sure. I really like this. Um, 
kind of metaphor to explain that that I heard that it's like having a pitcher of salty water. So the salt is like your negative experience. Okay. And you're not going to be able to, there's no way to pull that salt out of the water, right? So all you can do is add more fresh positive clean water and you add enough clean water to that pitcher then eventually the water will become drinkable right never perfect but it'll become fresher and fresher the more fresh water you add yeah yeah i like that nobody gets a chance to just dump out the whole cup and start over fresh right you know you can't get rid of all negativity right there was a quote that josh pulled out of one of the readings that he said last uh saturday in our class and it kind of changed my thoughts on this he's like when i first came here i thought like okay obviously all of buddhism is teaching how to absolve or how to how to get rid of suffering right and so he thought like well yeah so obviously suffering is bad and then he pulled some writing some quote he had out of one of the tuesday night classes and talked to kevin about it and then he brought it up saturday he's like yeah and then i i stopped looking at suffering as bad like sure it's suffering but it also teaches you and you learn from it and without suffering you're not going to learn you're not going to gain wisdom right and so everyone has to go through that that path Mm -hmm. so just to start looking at suffering that way i feel like it's kind of refreshing and kind of gives hope to like oh yes i'm going through a tough time right now i'm going to learn from this and if i can just speed up that time between going through the suffering and getting to the point where you can look back and say oh i learned from that then then you're gaining wisdom and you're getting out of that suffering quicker the next time because you learned from it yeah yeah and it kind of changed my perception on that as soon as he said like suffering's not bad i was like wait no you can't like <laughs> i think you misspoke but <laughs> but he was like no no hear me out but yeah i thought that was kind of a, a refreshing look no i mean i'm hugely grateful for the path that i've walked that got me you know to where i am in this moment i spent a lot of time in suffering but i can't complain about where i am now um, and i wouldn't be exactly where i am now if i hadn't gone through a path of suffering right yep so yeah i wouldn't dump out the salty water if i had the choice yeah, it all all those challenges kind of make you stronger, make you build up that wisdom to be able to help yourself and more people in the future too. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was going to bring this up earlier, and I just heard it on a podcast coming back from the Dharma Center today, and it was an interview with Tal Ben Shahar, uh, and he was talking about the difference between, uh, and I think he was even quoting someone else who said this, but the difference between sadness and depression mm-hmm. is that depression is sadness without hope, and looking at suffering that way as like something that's going to make me better in the future is a way of giving you hope. Like just having that perspective of knowing whatever you're going through, you're going to get through it and you're going to learn from it no matter how hard it is. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this sucks right now, but, um, you know, I guess if I think about it, I am going to get better from it or I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to learn from it and, and how to get through this so I can either help myself next time or help other people through it kind of gives you hope of knowing that that suffering is going to end. Yeah. And then where people get into depression is when they don't have that thought and they're just like, this sucks. Everything's always going to suck. You know, nothing's ever going to get better. And then that's where the mind can spiral into, you know, deeper and darker situations where you have thoughts of suicide and things like that. Yeah. Um, And well, and like some people were talking about today in Hosa, you know, depression is actually like a clinical chemical imbalance. mm -hmm. And, but yeah, the, the bit about it being, you know, s- somewhat hopelessness is definitely accurate, right? Yeah. Because cause what did they talk about? Uh, you know, one person said that they were in depression and that they decided, okay, well, I'm going to get out and take a walk. I'm going to, you know, so I'm going to get exercise because this is something that, that helps me. I'm going to... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to make small choices despite the hopelessness that I'm feeling and, you know, the small choices, 
actually like compound into, you know, habits and help yeah. your brain function in a different way. Right. Well, which can work either direction too. Right. You, know, you start yeah. forming bad habits, then it keeps you going down that exactly worst direction. And, and it is a, an actual chemical, mm-hmm. um, you know, disorder, disease, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I don't mean to say that like, all you have to do is have this perspective and you'll never be depressed. All right. No. <laughs> I know I solved, you know, suicide. No, no, no. <laughs> There's, it's, it's way more complex than that. But, um, there's, you know, there's, there's different treatments or, or paths for everybody where some people, um, you know, there's medicine that can actually help. And I've heard for others, there, there is no medicine that, that can really affect them. But, yeah. um, I do like the, at Buddhism, the whole idea of that, that the Sangha is the most important part of the community and of the, the Dharma, the teaching, all that stuff. And I think that's definitely true. It's just a matter of like, I feel like it's pretty tough though, to get people to go out and pursue a community that they can find and and find a group of people going through similar struggles that they can you know relate to like you like luckily founded AA and at the Dharma Center so mm-hmm. oh, I also wanted to ask did you have to like did you have anyone in your life that you had to kind of cut out of your life or or at least limit the amount of time you spent with them if they like were somebody that you would drink with uh or somebody that kind of encouraged that or <laughs> uh yeah well I mean, that kind of comes out in two different ways for me. I mean, luckily uh, with friends, uh, well, I didn't have a ton of them before. (laughs) Um, But, you know, my closest friends are either one of them is an AA and another just extremely supportive who he would stop having beers or whatever when I went over. Mm -hmm. So he was was really cool about it. So uh, I was lucky there not to have to cut anyone out as far as just like friends. But there wasn't that friend that was like, ah, oh, screw that man. Come have a drink with us. We're going to go out tonight. We're going to have a good time. You didn't have anybody that was like, right. I like the devil on one shoulder. Well, <laughs> right. But I mean, I did have my, my devil in the form of my ex-girlfriend. And that's one person that I had to uh, really figure out how to set boundaries with because uh, despite are not being together anymore, she would still come to me with lots of her problems or, uh, I don't know, just try to draw me into into strange situations okay. uh, that that would make it harder for me to maintain my sobriety. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anytime you're trying to like figure out or form new habits for how to resolve conflict or manage stress, and then she puts you into a stressful situation, exactly. that's going to test so, you over and over. Yeah, and so I mean, I like to think of her as like she's kind of my Devadatta though, um, <laughs> and just that person who has been probably the worst influence in my life, but also somebody that I want to see succeed, mm-hmm. you know, I have I hold no ill will towards this person. And, um, I've tried several times like to bring her to AA meetings and, uh, I've invited her to the Dharma center a few times, but, uh, she tends to make it more, uh, she tends to find ways to make the situation, the meeting about me and her in some way rather mm-hmm. than, the spiritual growth right so it's so, it still seems a little more manipulative she's not yeah, necessarily focusing on herself yet exactly yeah. and so you have to while you kind of take this vow to you know reach out and help others yeah you still can't force someone to you can't yeah you yeah. can lead them to water but you can't make them drink and uh you can't make well, them stop drinking. I re- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them stop drinking on their own <laughs> If it's an alcoholic horse, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's been a struggle. And yeah, my biggest thing, like I mentioned when I did my fear inventory was the fear of 
not being in a relationship and like I would say that I've had to to work on an addiction to relationships I don't forget I don't know what you call that but um you might as well face it you're addicted to love yeah (laughs) an addiction to love and that's something that a lot of a lot of people in AA start to realize that they were making a lot of really bad decisions putting themselves in situations with people they probably shouldn't have because they were afraid of just being alone and I mean that was me I was in I've been in serious relationships since I was in like a freshman in high school you Mm -hmm. know and since then I've always stayed in like some kind of committed relationship until until somewhat recently and uh yeah same here I feel like I've always been in one and like as soon as one ends pretty soon after another one starts and I hadn't really ever taken time to just like focus on me for a little while right and I still haven't I mean yeah and you find yourself like so I went through a long period of time after this last this relationship that I was in and was about seven eight years old and uh we lived together for most of the time um I went from that to living alone and having no girlfriend so I rushed into a whole bunch of different romantic situations with people who were no fit for me you know kind of looked at every every pretty girl that walks by and try and make up my girlfriend I don't know there's that kind of flailing about period and then eventually I find myself where I am now where I'm starting to really appreciate like the things I'm able to do as a single person as opposed to you know this relationship person I've been for forever Mm -hmm. I would have I'm sure I would have like no time for the Dharma Center if I was in a serious relationship in the way that I was before. Right. You know, I I would always find ways to make that the most important thing and push everything off to the side. So I'm spending a good amount of time actually focusing on myself, focusing on my growth as opposed to growing my connection to another person, uh, to one other person. I'm able to, you know, see that there's connections that I can make to a ton of other people. Mm -hmm. That romantic love is not the only kind of love. I mean, friendship and family love all of these things are equally powerful and i just needed to find a way to tune into those yep um, and just to find a balance because i yeah. feel like one of the things i struggled with a lot and i think i even talked about it in will's the the first episode was like in buddhism what's the difference between love for somebody you're in a relationship with and just love for every like mm. every person and yeah i feel like it's it's a lot more of you know they're they're both love they're both selfless they're both compassionate it's just one you have different boundaries than the other but i feel like you almost need all those types of relationships like you can't just have the one you know mm-hmm. and, and you know the one person you become dependent on right you know then you're going to form attachments but if you and they create they form resentments if yep. you become too dependent right. yep yeah. yeah it reminds me of the last episode i just watched on buddha there was a good one where there was like a girl that fell in love with a monk and the monk obviously like couldn't you know it was like I, i'm a monk I've, re- I've renounced that you know and then buddha i think explained to her you know your love for him is different than his love for you because his love for you is the same as his love for every person mm-hmm. um you know and he's not gonna form attachments with his love it's he's not gonna limit it to just you he's gonna give that same compassion to everyone and then of course in the show then she decides to become a monk herself not to like be with him but just to become <laughs> a monk and learn that same type of love but at the same time that's really confusing for me. And I'm like wondering if I should be in a relationship or not. And like, maybe I should stop looking for that and just focus on myself for a while and see where that leads. I'm Um, finding that's where I need to be because I also see it myself and how superficial I can be, mm -hmm. you know, that pattern of finding any pretty girl and asking them to be my girlfriend has not completely passed. You know, that 
and if that's my if that's still my reason for initiating a relationship then i'm probably not in the right mindset so i'm trying i don't know it's a it's a learning process and and you know it's funny there's just a lot of there's a lot of stigma like about being single now like kind of people want to pity uh, people that aren't in relationships i don't know if you see that to the same extent i do like Um, the, the kind of thought like oh the right person will come along and like uh I don't know. What, what do you a, think? There? A little bit. I'm in a different situation because I was in a relationship for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I just recently became single, dated somebody again this past year, which just ended a month ago. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I get a different perception. But yeah, I mean, I still hear that all the time from, from people who have been single for a while and just the, the general frustration and like that. Oh, let me offer you my advice because I'm in a relationship and mm-hmm. I know that you're trying to get what I have. And it's like, eh. <laughs> maybe not maybe yeah don't maybe exactly not what but you have you either know? way like the advice isn't always great <laughs> so yeah. like just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean you know <laughs> yeah you know yeah. doesn't mean you have all the answers for what a healthy relationship you know is and, and how to yeah kind of how to cultivate one right thanks for listening to the oblivious trav podcast we'll take a short break and hear a word from our very real sponsor are you a new or expecting parent of a newborn baby What if I told you, you could have all the joys of parenthood without ever changing a single diaper? And I'm not talking about paying for a nanny. I'm talking about a device that can change your baby's diaper for you. That's right, it's 2020 and it's about time. Introducing the first ever automatic baby cleaning diaper changing machine, the Babay. It's like a bidet and a dishwasher for the bottom half of your baby. In under 30 seconds, it removes and replaces your baby's diaper, as well as cleans, sanitizes, and if needed, applies a customizable application of baby powder. It's all inside a standalone three foot wide table made to keep in your nursery. Just preload up to 20 diapers, fill the water reservoir, and every seven days, empty the airtight sealed dirty diaper disposal container. And that's it. Go to babay.com, that's B-A-B-A-Y.com to pre-order yours now. And use promo code TRAV for 20% off. Requires a waterline for proper installation. This product is not to be used on the top half of your baby as a substitute for bathing or brushing teeth. Requires correct leg positioning as it may result in loss of limb. This is not a real product, but if you have invented it, please call me. I do not have a patent, but I've called dibs on this idea. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, other than the AA thing, was um, meditation. So this is something we've talked about a little bit. And meditation yeah. is something I still have not really made a part of my daily practice. I would like to, but I think I just I haven't prioritized it high enough yet. But I know you're like leading the meditation now in the Dharma Center once a week. Yeah. Uh, which or is once, cool. Once a month, yeah. Once a month, okay. Is that one of the Thursday night meditations or the yeah. Saturday morning? Okay. Thursday night. Okay. So you have a do you have a regular like meditation practice at home? Yeah, I try to maintain doing at least 20 minutes a day. Okay. Don't always make it, but... And and what is that practice? Like, when do you do that? What does that look like? Are you like... Uh, so I do have my... Sitting Indian style with your <laughs> hands up and like, do you put on any music or you sit in silence? Yeah, so I, I have built my home altar. I haven't had it officially installed yet, but okay. I have all the components. And uh, so I sit at my home altar and yeah, light incense and light the candles at the altar and black out the room. It's usually um, towards the end of my day that I do it either at the very beginning, you know, when I wake up, if I wake up early enough before work mm-hmm. or at the very end of the day. And so you kind uh, of focus on the light on the candles then, or no? I, or do you close your eyes? I close my eyes, and okay. um, uh, yeah, I usually do have maybe some kind of uh, soothing music on, very low, 
in the background and so yeah it's just sitting and you sit on a chair you sit on the floor or <laughs> i sit on a cushion oh, on a, a cushion a, okay a meditation cushion oh yeah that's the cushion i've seen you bring you bring in so i mean what i do at home Work. isn't anything special it just yeah I, I don't think it matters you what you do with your hands you I mean, for me meditation is just sitting you don't it, start on the cushion and then start levitate as you sometimes <laughs> <laughs> sorry i interrupted you're good uh um, yeah, it doesn't have to look like anything in particular. Just for me, it's usually sitting with my hands together in my lap and try to focus on my breath. Uh, like we kind of spoke about before, the utility of it is learning how to just be with your thoughts and not immediately acting on them, right? You're just sitting there. I mean, for me in the beginning, it was hugely helpful because I had these strong urges to drink and the best thing I could do for myself was learn how to put 20 minutes space between the urge to drink and, you know, the action of coming out of meditation. And maybe at that point, I don't have that urge anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I found. So you, you find that if you give things time, that kind of the impermanence of that condition is going to take effect. So are you, when you're meditating, are you kind of thinking about your different emotions or urges and just kind of reminding yourself of these th- things you've been taught or that you know you need to do? Or are you trying to like not think? Are you trying to just kind of clear your mind, focus on breathing and that's it? So to me, trying to not think is probably <laughs> going to create more stress than <laughs> than just thinking right. and just letting your mind roam, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's there's science that shows that when you're trying not to do something, you're utilizing the part of your brain that you're trying not to use even more. Mm-hmm. So it's more just about allowing those emotions, those thoughts to be, you notice them, but you're trying to return back to your target eventually, which is, you know, your, your breath usually, or if you have a mantra, present moment, yeah, your present moment. And so, I, I mean, meditation becomes kind of like a, like a tug of war sometimes like pulling you, you know, you have all these thoughts kind of pulling you out of the moment mm-hmm. over and over again. And so uh, what's useful to me is to kind of take note of those, what those thoughts are, you know, I'm not going to give them too much thought in that moment, mm-hmm. but I'm going to, I'm going to say, okay, here you are, you know, anxiety about something I need to do, have awareness of that and then have the practice of bringing yourself back to your, yeah. your target. So what if that's how I need to think about meditation is just like that it's practice coming back to right now and exactly. just thinking about right now. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And I like, uh, I like what uh, Kevin said a few weeks ago, I think after your Dharma talk, he pointed out that um, anger and a lot of other emotions are experienced in your mind whenever you're thinking about the past too mm-hmm. much. And then, anxiety and stress and worry are experienced in your mind whenever you're thinking about the future too much mm-hmm. and those you know those both lead to suffering because you're not thinking about right now mm-hmm. you know which which is the only thing you can control so like right. coming back to the serenity prayer like to recognize all those things you can't control or all the things in your mind when you're worried about what happened in the past which is already over or you're worried about what's happened in the future you know things that you can't control yet because it's in the future but there are mm-hmm. things you can do right now, and that's the only thing you can change. Right. And so I guess I, I maybe could think of meditation as practice doing that, mentally coming back to now. Right. Like, oh, I'm suffering, mentally come back to now. Just so I can, you can, I can get used to doing it more often. And then then you can start to apply it in daily life. And when you're about to get angry, oh, yeah, let's remember to come back to right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, it's where really like all of the teachings that we learn in Saturday classes and Tuesday classes like actually take form and it's kind of hard to explain in a lot of ways but during your meditation yeah during meditation like just interconnectedness and non-self what do you mean by non-self 
uh, I guess the dissolution of ego, the fact, the fact that, that, that you your ego are, is an illusion. That type yeah, of thing. the fact that your narrative is an illusion. Yeah. The fact that you just kind of are what you are in the moment, and that all this storyline before and behind you is kind of irrelevant right it's always a narrative in your mind so yeah is it, is it really true and that's a feeling that I don't, I don't think i ever could grasp until i got a little bit deeper into my meditation practice okay and you start to actually experience that dissolution of self as you sit there and allow your mind to go quiet and for me i've had some very strong experiences where i've been able to i feel like see into the connection of the universe and when you practice taking down all the walls that you're putting up around yourself mentally, eventually you get to see something different as you sit there. It's kind of hard to explain. Okay. You know, it's different for everybody, I think. Yeah. I, I feel like I've had a really profound reaction to it. Okay. Yeah. And this wasn't on like a ayahuasca or whatever those that drug is called in South America where they... I, ayahuasca. I'm not going to say that that's entirely... Um, <laughs> right. No. Because I've had some... But you've had profound experiences outside of something like that. Just like yeah. just doing your regular meditations. Yeah. I'd also say that there's some, you know, that like entheogenic drugs like that also have a, a great amount of Power value. Over your mind. Well, just value if you're looking at it from the right perspective. I think they can kind of provide a, a window into the feeling of disillusion of self. Like, um, mm-hmm. so for me, yeah, I've had some experiences with several anthogenic drugs, mushrooms and, and DMT. And yeah, I feel like those were glimpses of, of something else that I feel like I can kind of hope to attain in my normal meditation. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like you, you feel like you saw like flashes of truth. Exactly. That, yeah. yeah. And so once you've experienced it in a real, in a way that's real to you, then, mm-hmm. then you can find a way to come back to that. Yeah. And that's something I need to work on. The, the whole non-self thing is hard just because my fucking ego is so big. I like, <laughs> I feel like as soon as I meditate and I'm going to get done and be like, ah, oh, I'm so good at meditating. <laughs> my ego just starts to inflate again and defeats the whole purpose of all of it. But, uh, uh, they say that the only bad meditation is when you don't do. So. Mm. Well, fine. Then I guess I'm bad at meditating. <laughs> I feel like I could find a way to do bad meditation in other ways, too. But I'll let you know how that goes. Uh, I mean, I've done it all. Like, I've fallen asleep on dawn during meditation. and you know, Yeah, I've heard several people say that they've done that the first few times they were meditating. just like fell asleep. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'm doing this right. But maybe I am because my mind definitely got cleared. <laughs> and I fell asleep. Yeah, like I'm pretty sure I was snoring because that was a very deliberate way that you <laughs> that you just ring the gong at me, you know. Yeah, but another thing I wanted to ask about is the um, so you planted a herb garden, like you built a planter box at the Dharma Center and uh, planted an herb garden. Do you have a green thumb? Is that something you've done before? Yeah, I've always liked to garden. I think it comes from my uh, both of my grandmothers were pretty into gardening. Cool. Like my grandma on my mom's side would always take us out. They had a community garden in their little cul-de-sac. And so she would take me out and we'd pick fresh produce, like fresh tomatoes off the vine and eat them there. And that was always fun. So cool. It's like an early memory that I hold that kind of anchors me to my, I don't know, love of planting and stuff. But And also my other, my grandma on my dad's side is is awesome at all of that. And like she, um, she was a tour guide at the Grand Canyon for several years. Okay. That's where she met my my grandpa 
actually so she lived and, and worked there for I don't know uh, at least a decade I, f- I forget the time frame but um, and she can name every single plant that she walks past it's crazy okay. and so yeah I like to do that I have several raised boxes I've got three raised boxes at home oh nice I used to be super into um, taking avocado pits just from like avocados we buy at the grocery store turning them into avocado trees so I have a bunch of pots out on the patio nice that, uh, used to all have trees in them i think there's like two left because i've either given some away or they've died in the freeze but uh, <laughs> yeah i i try i think you can do the same thing with pineapples i've heard i've heard that too i don't know if it's warm enough well in the same way i probably should have pulled in the avocado trees because it's not right. really warm enough here to do avocados either but yeah i've seen some people my aunt in florida has a, a pineapple tree that she mm-hmm. did that like it's in a pot right now but she basically just took a pineapple after eating it and planted it and grew it from there but that would be really cool yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how the herb garden continues to progress yeah, and kind of grow. I'm hoping some more, so at this point somebody will bring some of their own herbs because yep. I've planted all I can think of and there's still room. <laughs> yep. I was going to say there's a bunch of pots also. If you want to take any of those, I'll show them to you after that. We'll see if you want to uh, go use them because I probably won't continue that hobby. But <laughs> <laughs> I've seen how good or bad at that I am. Just uh, having to regularly remember to water them. I'm like, ooh. How many weeks ago did I water this? <laughs> like, that's why it's brown. Uh, but Oh, the other thing I forgot to ask, back on the AA thing. So knowing that you're going through AA, uh, I didn't know if, it, if it's, like, kind of rude to, like, invite you to something that's going to happen at a bar or, like, if you'd rather be invited and just decline if you'd rather not be in that scene or around alcohol. Um, but, like, do you go out to bars ever right now? Um, nobody ever asks me to go, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I know that you have that event. See, that kind of thing doesn't bother me. Okay. Um, like, is that a scene that you would hang out in and just not drink or is that like, yeah, I mean, at this point I'm comfortable drinking socially, but I also like, but, like I, I, I don't want to lead you to a scene that's going <laughs> to like yeah. get you there to where you think, okay, I can drink socially. And then it's, you have a temptation and you're right there in the belly of the beast and like, you know, yeah, you, it's always a fine line, like, right? Hey, can I come and test you like your like your ex girlfriend used to? <laughs> like, <laughs> let me let me bring you some potential suffering and just see how you handle it. Right? No, like it's funny because like in those situations, even if I f- kind of felt comfortable, like I could drink, I probably wouldn't just because I know that everybody's aware that I'm in AA, mm-hmm. and it would probably be like alarming to some people. Right. So while I feel comfortable drinking socially, I don't because for that very reason right and everybody knows because i'm pretty pretty open yeah so um, so yeah it's funny (laughs) have you found it easy or difficult to like hang out at a bar or at a in a scene where people are drinking and not drink like do you find that no no like me and my buddy still go to university bowl all the time and Mm -hmm. play pool and and yeah do the bowling tournaments and sometimes we will be uh against a team that is just getting shit faced and (laughs) And we're like, how on earth are they still beating us? <laughs> <laughs> like, usually when I'm that many drinks in, I start bowling towards the gutter. What the heck? It's like, we've been buying you guys extra pitchers. You're supposed to reward us with some gutter balls. Right. Like, what in the world? How are they still just acing it? Um, but, yeah, uh, it doesn't bother me. No. That doesn't lead you to, like, maybe we should have a couple beers and we would bowl better. <laughs> you know, no, and it's usually because uh, when I'm in situations like that, I'm usually with you know a group of people supportive that, people, and mm-hmm. even like if I go out to eat, like eat with some people from the Dharma Center, 
and a couple people are drinking, I usually find that most people aren't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So well, and especially at the Dharma Center, yeah. yeah, And so, like, it's easy just with the people that I surround myself with at this point to to keep things responsible. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, and that's where, yeah, with the Dharma Center for sure, most people don't either because they battle with addiction in the past or they just don't by choice. Right. Like we did a tubing trip last summer, and we only got we only had like five of us that went, but we still got there and like. I didn't know if we were going to drink or not. I had brought, I don't know. I think I brought some like vodka and some lemonade that I was going to mix out there, but then got there and like nobody else was going to drink. I was like, like, well, I'm not going to be the only one drinking. So I just like left it in the car (laughs) and I went tubing. I was like, got back. I was like, well, that was my first sober tubing experience, but it was still fun. Yeah. And it's interesting um, how like normalizing it can be. mm -hmm. Um, these experiences that I've only ever done drunk. Right. And then like you go with a group of people who don't think about it mm-hmm. and suddenly you're not thinking about it either. So it's really that's yeah. so, so important who you surround yourself with. I right. Think. Well, and that's why I wondered if you had to like kind of cut anyone out of your life. Cause like there are people I hang out with where like we drink almost every time we hang out and mm-hmm. mostly cause like when we hang out, we meet at a bar somewhere cause mm-hmm. you know, uh, or at one of our places and it's like hey you want to drink and we just kind of do like right almost out of habit but right and so that's why i figured like if i were to make a change like that i feel like there's certain people that i would either have to hang out with less or drastically change our like relationship or just like set the norm of like hey i'm not going to do this anymore and it'd be like what i feel like it would just change the vibe and so yeah i didn't know if there were people that you kind of knew were going to be somewhat bad influences that you kind of had to cut out but luckily you yeah they kind of cut them uh, cut yeah. themselves out yeah you know it's easy to cut friends out edge friends out when you're uh when you're in the middle of alcoholism and so and plus i mean it's just like the like i was saying changes in environment i stopped working in restaurants and started working in cafeterias so okay. <laughs> a lot less access to drugs uh right. from the lunch ladies as opposed to the dishwashers <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> whatever um, right uh, you know, by the time that I got to actually feeling ready to go into AA, I think I was already free of a lot of those influences. And that's probably a lot, a big reason why I was able to find myself in AA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, another kind of condition for that was, um, letting go of an opioid addiction. You know, I, I've spoken in the past in Hosa about, you know, just having chronic migraines and, um, uh, it wasn't until maybe eight months ago or so that uh, the doctor that I'd had for the past 10 years who would write me all the Vicodin prescriptions I wanted, you know, he retired and then was like, oh, okay, I no longer have access because no doctors write <laughs> so prescriptions. You went to a, no, you know. <laughs> so you went to another doctor and I asked went, for that and they're like, um, you're absolutely crazy. not. Yeah, like, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what was the name of that doctor again? <laughs> so, I mean, he was an old school guy and he just didn't see a problem with it. But, you know, it's different now. Anyway, so I don't think I would have um, gotten into AA in the first place if I hadn't, like, been forcibly removed from that addiction mm-hmm. and, like, had the ability to see clearly. And the same thing is true of, like, you know, if I hadn't been forcibly removed from that relationship with that girl or if I hadn't forced myself into a into a different working environment then all these if it, all these conditions hadn't been met then maybe I wouldn't have made the step into 12 step in the first place so right if all those yeah if all those conditions didn't lead to those specific experiences you had that kind of led us that wake up call or that 
right so that yeah, whatever that cause was for you generated like that willingness to change mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah that will still still came from you that's right. the part that like makes it feel like kind of a difficult problem and and you know with buddhism too the fact that you can't cause other people to change you have to kind of give them the opportunity wait till they're willing to make that change for themselves you know makes it seem like a little more of an impossible problem to solve in society mm-hmm. but the only thing you can do is start helping people right um but yeah, it's been super interesting, like listening to your story. And as soon as you started talking at the Dharma Center, I knew like, all right, I want to talk to him because there's definitely some correlation between AA and Buddhism. And it's all, yeah, it's super interesting. Cool. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on. This was, yeah. uh, this was fun. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, I appreciate it.